Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. This week's episode is brought to you by The Trade Desk. Even the most perfect advertising connection is hard to create. The Trade Desk makes it easier. Run your entire digital campaign across every channel on one platform, thetradedesk.com. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is our creative editor, Tim Nudd. How are you, Tim? Doing pretty well, David. How are you? I am good. And we've also got back uh, Christina Monlos, a producer on the podcast and staff writer covering the branding world. How are you, Christina? I'm sweaty and tired, but very happy to be here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've been running you ragged today, so thank you for making time for us. Uh, and unfortunately, having to sit next to the sweaty pile of Christina is Katie Richards, a staff writer covering advertising. Katie, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And she's really not as sweaty as she says. Don't ruin the mystery of audio. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. It is a super exciting episode today because we have so much to talk about. Uh, this is our Can Lions preview ish, uh, edition. Uh, it is our Creative 100. Uh, we're going to walk through that, a big project we do every year. And uh, man, we've got some big news. We've got two big name brands that have abruptly dropped their agency partners uh, without a review. Uh, so we'll talk about those. Those are, I guarantee you, names and campaigns that you are very familiar with, even if you're not a big advertising junkie. Uh, we're going to talk about a mobile ad company that had to pay out or may have to pay out $40 million uh, after a gender discrimination case went to arbitration. Fascinating case that Christina's been covering. So we will talk about that as well. Uh, and then we're going to walk through, like I said, our Creative 100 and our previews for what you can expect to win at uh, the Can Lions, the Oscars of advertising. But first, the news. Well, as I mentioned, we had uh, a pretty uh, major legal uh, case going on this past week. It was in arbitration, so not a uh, necessarily the typical kind of legal battle. But uh, Christina had gotten a scoop on uh, an arbitration document involving Cargo, a mobile ad company uh, that had cut one of its uh, top employees, its most highly paid employee. And uh, then she had... Uh, 
basically said that she was a victim of sexual discrimination, wrongful termination, uh, breach of contract, quite a few other things. And uh, the arbiter came back, agreed with her pretty thoroughly and said that the agency should have to pay out, um, I believe, $40 million. Uh, Christina, tell us first, what uh, was the situation here? What led to this legal battle? Sure. Um, Basically, uh, this woman, the former SVP of sales for Midwest and West Coast offices for this company, had been with the company for um, four years. And I, uh, from from my understanding from the arbiter's documents, um, or the arbiter, ruling, um, you know, two male employees that she worked with allegedly weren't comfortable with her being the highest paid employee, weren't comfortable with her management style, which, uh, you know, was allegedly similar to the way that the men in the company um, managed. Um, so it's it's really a case of, you know, um, women, women not or a woman allegedly not being able to manage in the same way that uh, a male employee would. Um, but there's there's a whole slew of stuff in this document, uh, you know, a, a lot of really um, interesting allegations. And yeah. I, I would definitely recommend anyway. And I know uh, I, I used to cover courts. I love reading court documents, but this is one that stands up even if you know nothing about legalese. It is just a fascinating read and uh, it just keeps going. It is something like 83 pages of uh, documenting the hearings that the arbiter had with the, with the company. Uh, we did talk to the company. They, of course, uh, have denied um, the, you know, the, basically they, they disagree with the arbiter and they're going to try to reduce uh, that amount uh, that they have to pay out. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about this uh, $40 million award. $40 million is a massive number. And I think a lot of people were assuming when you see that in the headline, you think, oh, it's punitive. Like they're punishing the company for what they did. But that's not really the case. You did a piece uh, breaking down uh, where the, where this money goes. And uh, it sounds like the punitive and the emotional distress was a pretty small piece of it. Yeah. Um, the emotional distress is just 60K of 40 million, which, um, you know, if you if you are thinking that something is, you know, $40 million for emotional distress, I saw a bunch of tweets be like, that's too much way too much but the thing is that this woman she she was owed a lot from the company in terms of uh commissions for sales that she had and you know there was she had nearly like nine million dollars in um vested uh options and and unvested options and um you know the the biggest sum of it is uh 27 Point five million for equal pay liquidation damages. So, um, yeah, I mean, when she was uh, cut, uh, she was, um, uh, according to the to the the court document, she was cut uh, with cause, so terminated with cause over a breach of the non compete, which uh, you know the arbiter found to be not not valid. Uh, but essentially, she had all these stock options that you lose when you're when you're terminated with cause, right? So so I, it feels like that was really a big piece of this. Is I mean, just talking nine million dollars worth of stock options that she lost by being terminated for cause, right? Exactly, exactly. And you know the way that she was terminated that. Um, um, that's that's also a, an interesting bit of this. Um, you know, she was initially placed on paid leave, then unpaid leave, and then when um, she was terminated, it was for um, going on a job interview. 
you know. Yeah, not accepting the job, nope. just going on the interview. Yeah. So a fascinating read. I definitely recommend look up Cargo and Adweek. It was an exclusive uh, that Christina put together this past week. So definitely check it out. It is a, a fantastic read. She's done a, a follow-up piece, too, breaking down that money uh, of why the $40 million. Uh, moving on in another little bit of uh, fascinating agency news, we had two big shops drop uh, get dropped by their brand clients. Uh, one was Dos Equis, uh, which dropped uh, Havas, the creator of their most interesting man in the world uh, campaign. This is one that's been running for a little over a decade, if I'm right. Tim, first tell us a little bit about the backstory of this campaign. I, I feel like this is hands down one of the kind of best known and most beloved campaigns of, of the modern advertising era. Yeah, so it's the most interesting man in the world, as you said, and it goes back to, I think, 2006. And Jonathan Goldsmith, uh, the actor, the not very successful actor throughout most of his career. Um, you know, th- in fact, uh, he, re- he recently wrote a memoir that was excerpted, I believe in Vanity Fair, where he talks about um, his whole career and how, you know, at 65 years old, he basically was, you know, uh, struggling for work and he didn't have any money. And suddenly this, this gig landed in his lap. And uh, everybody knows these commercials. You know, it's the, the really f- funny copywriting about this guy who has crazy adventures. Uh, each each ad was like three or four one-liners, and it was really, really famous. And uh, I think it was about a year ago, um, the Goldsmith retired from the character, and uh, they, they hired a new uh, most, most interesting man, a, a French actor named Augustin Legrand. And uh, I just don't, yeah, I just don't think uh, the, the new character, you know, the new actor really, really was successful. I think uh, everybody seems to complain about him, like he's not as f- fun as the old character. And I think it, uh, you know, the, the the agency and client haven't said that, the, you know, there's anything wrong with those ads or that was the reason for the split. But I think it's, you know, it's it's probably the case. And uh, I think it just is down to the fact that this this campaign was really about the actor, you know. And when you switch to a new actor, it's not like Doctor Who when you can switch to a new actor and everything's cool. I think this this didn't really quite work. He looks like a French Michael Phelps. <laughs> yeah, totally. And he's also like a sort of more of a Heineken-esque kind of man of the world type guy. You know, the, the whole f- fun thing about Jonathan Goldsmith is that he's this sort of funny older character and, and, and to have like a younger man who's actually out doing cool stuff, uh, kind of the jokes, um, I think, fell a little flat um, with that as the backdrop, honestly. He's too young. Like many brands, uh, they are switching to Droga 5. Uh, Droga's had an interesting history with uh, with beverage brands, with beer brands. They obviously did some incredible work for Newcastle uh, with the If We Made It uh I guess not not a Super Bowl ad, but a what do we call those like shadow ads? Uh, so it wasn't an official Super Bowl ad, but it ran during the Super Bowl uh, period, and uh, about the ad they would have made uh, for the Super Bowl. And uh, they've done some work for Best Dam, the the kind of spiked or what do you ever call it hard root beer companies. Uh, did some project work with them, uh, but uh, it sounds like this is their their new uh, beverage account. So uh, should be interesting to see what comes out of that. Uh, Katie, you covered Droga quite a bit. Uh, you know, what kind of work or what kind of shift do you think we're going to see in tone uh, with those guys taking the helm? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I haven't, I feel like they might take maybe a little bit of a darker side. And I only say that because I'm thinking of the sprint work that they did recently, which was like super dark with the, um, for the Super Bowl with the, the family on top of a cliff and the dad's pretends to fake his own death or whatever. 
And I just think that kind of dry humor, that dark humor, is something that they they really excelled at with that campaign. So I think it could be interesting for them to explore that kind of angle a little bit and just take it away from this celebratory thing to something a little bit more humorous and maybe a little bit darker. I think that could be kind of cool. Katie, you also wrote about um, how Havas said goodbye to Dasekis this week. I did, yeah. I thought it was kind of baller, but also kind of bold at the same time. So essentially Havas took out a print ad. They took it out in the back of our issue this week also um, and a few other publications. And they just ran a full ad saying goodbye to Dos Equis. And there's a little line at the top that says cheers to our success. And there's a list of every single award that the campaign won under Havas's leadership and under their creative capabilities, I guess. And I mean, there's I don't want I don't know how many like maybe 80 awards on here um and I just I I don't know I just thought it was really kind of silly um and there's at the bottom they kind of wish the next agency drug a five luck and there's a phone number at the bottom and if you call it it's a recording of a guy saying like you know we're off doing some really important stuff right now really interesting stuff but leave a (laughs) message if you want to work with us and we'll get back to you and I I don't know. I thought it was pretty bold. It was like half sincere, but also felt a little bit maybe snarky. Like, goodbye. Goodbye to all these awards that you won. Yeah. Like, good luck getting (laughs) just as many with your next agency. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of kind of one of my favorite uh, agency split uh, stories was Dan Wyden coming out after Wyden and Kennedy had gotten dropped uh, by Heineken. And then Heineken won Brand Marketer of the Year. Uh, based on a lot of the work they had done with uh, with with Wyden, uh, and he came out. If I remember right, Tim, he came out uh, drinking a drinking a, a Heineken. Right? Yeah, Mark like, Fitzloff did it on the can stage. Um, oh, that's what. It, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny. Also and very uh, so, yeah, exactly. It's just this kind of subtle of like, hey, yeah, man, I'm glad we could win all this uh, awards for you. <laughs> Um, well, and uh, another split we had, uh, which is even more long running, if a, a, maybe a bit less on uh, top of mind, is uh, uh, American Express has cut, uh, well, or has reduced its its workload with uh, Ogilvy. And so Ogilvy has a decades long relationship with American Express. They created every uh, Amex campaign you can think of. Membership has its privileges. Uh, uh, what's the other line I'm forgetting here, Tim? Don't leave home without it. Yeah, yeah, the classic. Uh, it's so you know they are going to McGarry Bowen, which surprised me a bit. McGarry Bowen was kind of the uh, one of the hottest shops uh, in town a few years ago, uh, but really uh, had had kind of dropped off the the you know top of mind radar a bit. Uh, were you surprised at all about that, Tim? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we haven't seen too much from American Express lately that's been that exciting. I think you know they're trying to develop a whole new global brand platform to kind of I think be known for more than just credit card uh, credit cards. So. You know, that's a whole new assignment, and clearly they, they felt that uh, another agency was probably, uh, you know, a, a, wise, a wise thing to do to get, to get someone fresh on the account, considering they're, they're really trying to do this global pr- platform that's very different from what they've done in the past. But, yeah, I mean, along with IBM and a couple of others, you know, Amex has been one of those cornerstone accounts at Ogilvy, so I don't think it's quite clear yet uh, how, how much Ogilvy has actually lost here, but um, certainly morale-wise, it's not great. 
Yeah, this is a 50-year account uh, for Ogilvy. Uh, and so, yeah, they've had some leadership restructures on the Amex side. Uh, they they cut their long, or their longtime CMO uh, retired. And so they've, uh, you know, they've gone through quite a bit. And you see this all the time. You see whenever a brand has a, a new CMO, new leadership team, uh, they're almost certainly going to get a new agency uh, soon after. So not necessarily too surprising, but it is one of those long-running partnerships. We should also say, though, that, you know, Amex over the years has had many, many agency partners. You know, it was Crispin Porter that did the Small Business Saturday campaign that was that was so famous about three or four years ago. They also work with Digitas LBI on a bunch of stuff. Um, so this is a marketer that's not afraid to kind of play the field and, and use a bunch of shops for, for different assignments too. Yeah, and that feels like it's almost kind of the new normal, right? Is like instead of going all in with one partner you're going to work with forever. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, just... it's a huge client too. And they have so many different businesses. Well, uh, one more thing we wanted to talk about news, even though uh, it's it's a little little uh, different than our usual news item, but I did want to make room uh, to talk about our Chicago package. So we do a city spotlight series where we take a look at a major city that is not New York or L.A., which we cover quite a bit. Uh, last one was Atlanta. For those of you who read the site and listen to the podcast, we did a, a big package on Atlanta. This time we did Chicago. Uh, my, my wife's family is from Chicago. I've spent a lot of time there, so it's certainly a city I feel very close to. Uh, but uh, some really great stories that, that came out of this package, uh, re- really looking at the evolution of it. Uh, the food scene, I think, is something Chicago's always had a great food scene. But, uh, you know, they, they have uh, just an exploding kind of not just culinary, but also in, in craft beer. You know, they have nearly 200 craft breweries in Chicago now, and there are new ones opening almost every month. Uh, and so they kind of admit that they've reached saturation. Uh, but we've got a great piece on that and, and how the breweries are adapting is, you know, they reached a point where you, can, you can't really fight for space on taps and on shelves anymore. And so they're starting to move into more like uh, opening brew pub restaurants and, you know, re- really kind of building destinations people can go to that are owned by that brewery. Uh, Rick Bayless, the uh, celebrity kind of restaurateur, uh, owns a, a really uh, fascinating place that we profiled in there that's following this model uh, and uh, and recruiting some of the top talent from some of the bigger breweries. So that that's a really fascinating story. And uh, the evolving kind of brand scene, uh, Kraft Heinz is there, Mondelez is there. Uh, it, most you know most of these huge corporations they have split offices. They'll half headquartered there and half headquartered in another city. But what's fascinating is a lot of them are moving downtown from the suburbs, uh, and that's a trend we saw in Atlanta as well. Is uh, you know that's a really positive trend to see people moving into the the you know the middle inner cities of some of these towns, and instead of kind of hiding out in the suburbs. Uh, we've got something like 10 articles in the Chicago package about uh, the lessons from the Cubs and uh, how their marketing evolved as they kind of grew from being lovable losers to being uh, World Series champs and, uh, and and just so many other great stories. Uh, did any of you have a chance to check out any of those? Were there any stories that jumped out of you as being kind of interesting? I mean, Robert's like opus on uh, the Chicago Tribune and that sort of brand uh, situation. I don't, is that on our site yet? I know I, yeah, I yeah. got to check it out uh, a little before that because I love checking out what um, our reporter Robert Clara is able to do. He's he's just a, a master of, of all things um, branding. And I, I know he got to talk to some really interesting people for this piece where it really looks at like what happened with with these like really iconic you know media brands it's cool it's a good read 
I enjoyed the, you mentioned the Cubs thing. It was great to see um, Jameson Fleming, our, our web editor, write that one up. He's such a huge sports fan. And uh, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, so I was more of a White Sox guy. But it was nice to see, uh, you know, interesting story around the Cubs for sure. I mean, the White Sox didn't win the World Series, so... No, not since 05. <laughs> Way to rub it in. You got me there. <laughs> I, I personally wrote a piece uh, that I think listeners of this podcast might enjoy because it is about one of the more uh, famous pieces of work to come out of Chicago, the Art Institute of Chicago's uh, Van Gogh B&B, which was one of the big winners across the awards circuit uh, last year. Uh, that was done with Leo Burnett uh, with Starcom Media Vest, the media agency, uh, and just, just one of those fantastic pieces. So I, I basically talked to... Um, the client uh, at uh, at Art Institute and the creative director who worked on it, who is now the chief creative officer, Britt Nolan at, at Leo Burnett, uh, and just kind of looked at how they came up with the idea and then more importantly, what lessons they learned. Uh, because, you know, it's one thing to have a big hit, uh, but it's another to be able to take some learnings away from that that you can kind of carry forward and, and keep improving. And for, for that one, for Van Gogh B&B, which uh, many of you probably remember was a recreation of Van Gogh's uh, bedroom uh, painting as a physical space, uh, which was a cool idea. But the, the real tipping point was when they partnered with Airbnb uh, to make it a rentable space. And everybody just says that was the tipping point when it just became this uh, such a brilliant idea. And uh, and they they said that the lessons they took away from that from the agency side was just to keep the simplicity in mind, keep an idea as simple as you can and whittle it down to its kind of bare components so that you can focus on craft, uh, which I think definitely came across in, the, in that and then from the client side, you know, they said it was really about taking advantage of the space you have, of the physical space you have, of the content you have within your own building. Uh, you know, for them, that was just not a heavy lift. Uh, they're marketing, they're a nonprofit. Their marketing budget wasn't huge. Uh, it certainly was a lot of work to create it. Uh, but they said that since then, what they loved about it was that it, uh, most, almost uh, all of their uh, Airbnb guests were from the Chicago area. So they got tons of global attention. It was covered in more than 100 countries, uh, this campaign. But, uh, you know, a lot of the actual turnout was from Chicago. And for them, that was as much of a win as anything else because they have a hard time uh, getting people to just come down the street and go to a museum that's in your own backyard. So definitely recommend uh, checking out the package. Uh, take a look at some of those stories. We have so many more. Uh, we have a piece about some of the local chains like Portillo's that have become national and how they're balancing that. Really, really fun package. And I won't linger on it much more than that because Lord knows we have so much more stuff to talk about today. But thanks to everyone at Adweek who contributed to that. Uh, and uh, definitely check out our City Spotlight on Chicago. And now we are taking a break from our usual feature, my favorite feature of Ads Worth Watching, because we've got Ads Worth Winning is that a better name? I don't know <laughs> oh if that's a good God. Nice. <laughs> We're going to go to Tim for up. predictions on what's going to win at Cannes. So what's going to win at Cannes, Tim? <laughs> well, we have a, you know, we published a list of 25 uh, hopefuls uh, this week. And I mean, I think you have to talk about Fearless Girl first. You know, this is the campaign for State Street Global Advisors. We've talked about it a lot. It was the statue, the bronze statue that McCann dropped into Bowling Green Park um, back in March. And it's become this sort of global phenomenon. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's got an opinion on it. And, you know, it's a campaign that's so unusual and so hard to fit into categories. Uh, it could win, uh, not just win, but win big in, in, in any number of categories, outdoor, PR, promotions, uh, activation, the glass lion, certainly, for, for great work around gender. I think it has to be one of the favorites going into the Titanium Awards uh, later next week. Um, everyone loves it. I mean, almost everyone loves it. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing advertising juries go crazy for also. Um, 
So I can't, you know, could you guys imagine it not doing well? I think it's going to be probably the biggest piece of the week. It's going to do so well. (laughs) (laughs) And you're thrilled about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Christina was one of the, well, you weren't a detractor exactly, but. I was one of the almost. I love how you changed it from being like everyone loves it to almost everyone loves it. I'm an almost. Okay. So. Well, what are your beefs with it, Christina? It's too many. It's 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 not not suitable for podcast, is what I'll say on that one. Um, but no, I mean, talk to me and Ken, and we can we can have it out about Fearless Girl. I don't know. Um, Part, partly that it's not Fearless Woman, right, Christina? That's one of well, your yes, issues. Yes, that's it. that's obviously one of my issues because most uh, you know super feminist uh, Im- images from brands have to do with empowering young girls, which is great. We should empower young girls; they're awesome. But you know, there are very few images of powerful women that are like you know held up in the same regard, which is a disappointment. You know. Um, Mm -hmm. I, there are plenty of powerful women to point to obviously, but like, you know, if we're, if we're going to do this thing, I would love to see a statue of a grown woman that's actually made well and not as hideous as the one that it's a Lucille Ball upstate in New York. But anyway, let's, let's move on and talk about the other ones. Well, we also learned something else fascinating about Fearless Girl, which is that it was not originally supposed to be Fearless Girl. It was supposed to be Fearless Cow? Tim, tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, well, we did. We did unfortunately learn this last week. I think it was where uh, I think some guy who's upset about the statue um, filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the City of New York to find out how, why, why, and how it was the permit was approved for it, and discovered along the way that um, McCann's original idea was maybe to have a statue of a cow facing down the bull, and then they decided that was obviously a terrible idea. So. <laughs> Um, they changed it to a girl instead, but you know that I feel that's un- I, f- I feel like it's almost unfair to 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 reveal the the makings of the of the uh, the missteps along the way to fearless girl. Obviously, it was a bad idea, and they realized it was a bad idea, so they didn't do it. No, I, I don't think it's unfair to 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 you know. It's like a lot of the most famous campaigns kind of have these moments of you know what it could have been. Uh, and, and you know, how it could have been watered down. But this one is just maybe one of the greatest pivots in advertising history. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's go- to go from the worst idea ever to, like, one of the best. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I think film is actually going to be a pretty strong um, field this year. Uh, We're the Superhumans, the Paralympics ad that Channel 4 did in England um, last summer. That's got to be the the favorite going in it did, did win the top film uh, award at the one show there's a bunch of others though the the evan spot from for the bbdo new york did for sandy hook promise um i think everybody knows that 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 spot um that's going to be certainly in the mix for for a big film award um that gravity cat commercial from japan i don't know how many of you guys have seen that but it's crazy and it's like it's just a very interesting commercial it's like a four and a half minute commercial where everything gets turned upside down in this uh these the sisters these two sisters in their apartment uh they're they're sort of chasing after this cat that's um defying the laws of gravity it's hard to describe you just have to watch it but so film i think will be interesting now geico obviously had a, a big big win with their um you know the the oh shoot why am i forgetting what they called the skippable unskippable uh, yeah, the unskippable. Uh, but, you know, they've done some really cool things in that space since then. How do you think their follow-up campaign is going to do? Yes, it'll. I think it'll win. Uh, the crushed ads um, are, are the ones that are entered this year. It's the the commercials that you see, not just on, on pre-roll, actually, but they put them on television where 
um, the whole scene kind of gets crushed from left to right with the giant Geico logo coming in, uh, and they you know they crush the ads down from thirty seconds to fifteen or whatever. So yeah, I think that'll that'll certainly win a line. I don't think uh, I don't think it's as innovative as Unskippable was. It's not gonna it's not in the running for a Grand Prix or anything like that, but it'll certainly win. And uh, you know, some of my favorites, I think the Louise Delage campaign for Addict Aid uh, that BETC did. Um, that was a fascinating campaign where you know it was uh, basically the agency created a whole fake uh, persona uh, on Instagram and worked hard to get her a following. It was a young woman named Louise Delage, and they they uh, over a period of two months they pretty much organically um, got her about sixteen thousand followers and uh, by by using about a hundred hashtags on on every post. And uh, they sort of pulled the rug out at the end and, and revealed that it was, uh, you know, it was a, a PSA campaign warning against uh, alcoholism because every single photo that Louise was in, uh, she's holding a drink or had a drink nearby. And so, I mean, that's the kind of work um, that I think the juries that can really um, value these days. It's, it's work that really lives where the consumer lives and is really clever and surprising and engaging and kind of embodies the insight Um you know, much like the Evan spot did, actually, where you know you should be noticing signs of a problem when they're when they're staring you in the face and not not be oblivious to the, the the warning signs around you when when there's a problem, someone's having a problem. So I think that's interesting. And then I also really love the Nike Unlimited Stadium. Um, this is not a campaign actually that we've that we wrote about until we did our cam preview this year. It was done by BBH Singapore. And basically, I think it was in the Philippines, they set up a, a, a pop-up running track. And it's, uh, it was shaped like a, like a running shoe. So if you, they photographed it from above, and it's this beautiful um, kind of figure-eight running shoe type shape. And, uh, but it's, it's so much more than that. Like basically, um, people who went there could sign up, and, and they, could, they, do, they would run, um, I guess, basically a, a, a trial lap. And the, the running track would actually create a hologram of them, which you would then run next to. And it would push you to kind of beat yourself in a race and things like that. And it's, it's one of those outdoor campaigns that was just really special. And I think that'll probably do well next week also. It, it feels like we didn't have any big Christmas ads uh, this past year in the way that we have. Like it, you always see those. Uh, and I know you put the, the trampoline dog in the mix of stuff. It'll probably do well. But I mean, do you think any, any Christmas stuff from last year is going to going to rise to the top? No, I think, you know, I think you're right. I think in past years, particularly I'm thinking of Monty the Penguin, which which won uh, big a few years ago. And then last year, um, Justino, the Spanish lottery commercial, I think won two Grand Prix. It was either last year or the year before. So, yeah, I think... And Harvey Nichols. Let's not forget Harvey Nichols. And Harvey Nichols a few years ago, right, yeah. Won multiple Grand Prix for their, sorry, I spent it on myself thing. There's that H&M campaign um, that Wes Anderson did that I think might do well. That was a Christmas ad, wasn't it? That was a Christmas ad. It was actually a handful um, that that will do well. I'm not sure any are running for top prizes, but yeah, I mean... Um, that was also done by well, it was made by Wes Anderson essentially, but Adam and Eve was certainly um, heavily involved in the in the creation of that. Which yeah, I, I love that one too. That, sh- that should do pretty well as well. Uh, well. One thing I always wondered, Tim, is do you think the ads get punished at Can for their timing? Like if they come out, I'm, I'm thinking explicitly of the Kenzo Spike Jones ad uh, where Margaret Qualley's running around dancing to the the Mutant Brain song. Um, that came out in August, so essentially right after. Uh, can, do those ads, I mean, do judges still give them a fair shake a year later? Yeah, I think they do. I don't think, I don't think it hurts them at all, actually. I've been in enough jury rooms now watching 
people debate this stuff. Um, sometimes it comes up where people will say, you know, I saw this at the previous show and, but you know, these, the jury rooms are, are, they are pretty fair to the work by and large. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to, um, if anyone suggests, um, demoting something because it's, it, it's been awarded elsewhere, it's quickly, uh, shot down that that's kind of not, you know, not, not the way it should work. So really, you know, a lot of campaigns have gone through this, um, you know, this, this spring, I think it was, you know, field trip to Mars, the the the, uh, the McCann um, virtual reality bus ride. Um, that's one over a period of you know five or six different shows in a row, and everybody's seen that work, and everybody knows it's won everywhere, but it still keeps getting awarded because it's just the best work. So, I think the judges are pretty um, are, are pretty smart to to you know be fair about that stuff. I, I do think some campaigns suffer from diminishing returns in the sense that when they first win, you've never heard of them. And so you're like, oh, this is brilliant and clever. And then in the months to follow, you kind of learn more about them and, and you know, that maybe they weren't all that they their case study, you know, promised them to be. Um, and so that that's not the case with when you're talking film and you're talking craft. But I do think that there are some of the innovation winners where, you know, even the ones that don't, you know, they, they don't have massive fallout. But I do wonder sometimes if people fall out of love with them, you know, once you hear more about the context and find out yeah. what Sometimes I think that might be true, but I think the best work uh, tends to to be unimpeachable over over many months. So I think you may see some things win. I mean, this the interesting thing about um, like Fearless Girl, for example, is that this will be the first show that it, that it will be eligible for because the the judging for the one show I think wrapped up in March. So um, it was well past the deadline for that to be entered. So this will be that'll be an example of of something that might maybe win even more because people will be surprised by it or, or at least want to feel compelled to, to honor it on its first go-around. Well, um, thank you so much for rounding that up, but I definitely recommend everybody check out uh, the uh, our predictions uh, that uh, Tim compiled with, uh, I, b- I believe Leo Burnett puts uh, a lot of those together uh, as well, right? And they do a good job of recommending yeah, stuff from other agencies. Yeah, they pick out a bunch of uh, campaigns each year, and we sort of pick and choose from those. And um, they've been doing that for 30 years, so they're sort of the the go-to agency for that. And uh, also this year, we're going to have a, a pretty substantial contingent at the Can Lions. Tim, I believe this is your seventh year? Seventh game? I think so. Yeah, seventh year. So I'm looking forward to it. should be fun. I think it's going to be my fourth, but first years for uh, Katie and Christina. So uh, what are you two excited about? Uh, Christina, I know you don't get excited about things, but like, <laughs> what, what are you... <laughs> what? Well, but we'll start with you. What what are you uh, what are you looking forward to? Um, I, I'm I'm looking forward to the rosé, obviously. But uh, no, uh, the, so you can get that. So here. many of the sessions are about uh, gender equity and in, in advertising, and that's really interesting for me. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see that. I you know I'm also excited to see um, you know I guess Gray has Pussy Riot for their um, music ceremony thing and that sounds <laughs> very fun um as long as they're not you know arrested between now and then um and yeah I mean just to just to actually see what all of this looks like and oh right um I'm moderating a panel for Dollar Shave <laughs> Club so I guess I should probably put that on there too excited to do that so you know 
a whole bunch. I love the topic for that one, too. That's about, like, whether you should use or whether agency work should be in-house or with an outside agency, right? Yeah, it's with some agency folks and some in-house folks for Dollar Shave Club, and they're kind of talking about whether or not, you know, it's a good thing for a career trajectory, if it's a good thing for brands, you know. Um, there, there are a whole slew of issues with it, so I think it'll be really fun. Um, yeah, what about what about you, Katie? Um, I'm excited to meet a lot of these, like, global agency people people that I've never had the chance to meet in person. Maybe I've talked to them on the phone or I've written about them, but I've never actually met them before. So I think this will be really cool um, to meet some of those people and also just see, I'm always really interested to see like what the younger generation in the business is doing. So obviously Can has like its whole Young Lines thing and there's a lot of young creatives that go. So I'm, I'm excited to see like what's interesting to them right now, what they're working on. I think that'll be really fun. Wait, you just reminded me. Um, yes. Jonathan Mildenhall is doing that whole, like, if you're a woman or if you're, um, you know, not white and you're a creative, I want to meet you at Cannes thing. Oh, and yeah. I And I want to know what happens with that, like, if he actually meets with people and how many people he ends up meeting with. Should I just try and follow him around and see what he's up to? <laughs> I think you should do exactly that. Great. All right. <laughs> You won't be able to miss him. He'll be like wandering the streets with a lantern looking for anyone who's not white at Cannes. It is, it yeah. is there is almost no diversity at this place whatsoever. <sighs> um, not to bring everybody down. Um, but uh, I, I do think, you know, to your point, Katie, I think the thing I used to really enjoy was getting to meet, again, a lot of these global creatives and creative leaders that we don't get to, you know, run into in New York. Uh, but the thing that surprised me is in the years after my first uh, can, I really started to enjoy meeting the young creatives. Uh, to your point, they just have so much excitement and energy for this. Whereas you talk to the people who've been doing this for 25 years, there's just this exhaustion. There's just this yeah. like going through the motions. And I understand. I mean, that's just reality. But talking to Young Lions winners, talking to some of these people who get sent out to give their first speech ever, uh, you know, as part of one of these smaller sub-conferences within Cannes, uh, you know, man, they are just fascinating people. And those have been some of the best experiences I've had. So I, I really think you're going to enjoy that. And, um, well, it will be, uh, I definitely uh, encourage everyone to keep an eye on adweek.com. You cannot miss our Cannes coverage because we post a lot of it. Tim, how, how, how many pieces of content did we post last year from Cannes? I think we did about 100 stories last year over six days, or uh. I guess it was more like... I'm counting the uh, the stuff lead up the lead up to, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a lot of content and it's there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of winner stories. There's a lot of panels and programming that we cover, uh, and then we also kind of away from the palais, we like to get together with agency folks. We're going to be doing a ton of videos, original videos with agency people about some of the the best work of the year. Um, so yeah, I mean, it should be great. And podcasts this year, we're going to be doing a uh, special daily podcast. So if you like this podcast, I have good news. Uh, if you don't like this podcast, I don't know why you're listening to it right now, but, uh, <laughs> we're going to be doing a, uh, can quickies, uh, some, some shorter editions of the podcast. So it won't be an hour a day, uh, for better or worse, but I will be sitting down with a handful of really fascinating folks. I don't want to say any of their names just for fear that that will jinx it and they will fall through, uh, as sometimes happens when people People have a little too much rosé, but uh, it is a great lineup, and I'm really looking forward to rolling those out uh, over the week. So definitely keep an eye on your podcast feed uh, for special episodes live from Cannes. Well, not live. They're podcasts, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to move on to our big discussion of the week, uh, and this time we are talking about our Creative 100. 
So the Creative 100 is a list. This is in its third year. This is, as the name implies, it is 100, uh, what, what I typically describe as kind of the most creative professionals in America. This year, we did mix things up a little bit. We put in a, a list of 10 non-U.S. Uh, creative leaders on there because uh, the list was going to be running in our can preview edition uh, in our you know print issue. So we wanted to make sure that we had some global representation in there as well. But it, the other 90 are uh, based in America. And, uh, Tim, let's talk just big picture. Uh, this is a project you and I obviously work uh, pretty heavily on each year, split it kind of 50-50. You take the 50 agency folks, I take the 50 non-agency folks, and uh, and then that's that's what makes the list. But what are you looking for every year when we figure out who to put on this? Well, you and I were talking about this recently. Um, you know, this is the third year of the list. As you say, it's 100 new people every year. And I feel like the first year um, we had a lot of the, you, you know, not to be disparaging, but they were kind of the usual suspects in a way, um, particularly the agency people. We, we wrote about a lot of the very familiar CCOs and ECDs. And, uh, you know, it's in the years since then, particularly now this year, um, I think we're kind of getting, we're kind of digging deeper into a lot of the agencies. We're also writing about agencies we haven't written about before. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, instead of covering folks that, that you already know, we're, we're, we're picking kind of lesser known people, um, that actually made that TV ad that you loved or that outdoor stunt that you thought was cool. So I think, I really do think that there's kind of a fresh urgency to this year's group and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of who we picked and, and the work they're doing. Um, certainly in the agency world, um, you, you probably feel the same about the non-agency folks. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it is a, obviously I have a wider pool to, to draw from each year. Uh, the, the, the lists we run outside of the agency, we break the 100 up into more manageable lists uh, for your reading convenience. Uh, we have celebrities and influencers, uh, which is always a popular list. We have digital innovators. We have artists and authors, uh, and, um, branded content this year, uh, which is, was a fascinating list of you've got everyone from the woman who runs the Wendy's Twitter account uh, to the the woman who runs content for Everlane. Uh, you know, a really fascinating mix there. Uh, but uh, obviously, the biggest discussion we have each year is who to put on the cover of this issue. And Katie, you wrote the cover story. So who did we put on the cover of our Creative 100? This year, we put Kumel Nanjiani on the cover. Um, and I want to give a quick hat tip to Christina because I believe she was the one who suggested we look into him in the first place and I'm, I'm glad we did because he's awesome. Yeah, Christina, what, uh, what what are some of your favorite aspects of why you think uh, Camille is uh, a, a kind of a good representation of what we look for in the Creative 100? Well, I, I kind of was in a unique situation because I got to see the movie that's coming out this June um, that he wrote and stars in called The Big Sick. Um, I got to see that back in January at Sundance. So I kind of had a little in, more insight than anyone else in the office would. Um, but, you know, this this film that he made is is something that I think people will be talking about quite quite a bit. I'm gonna leave that to Katie to talk about a little bit more. Um, but you know, he's he's someone who's like all over the place. He's in ads. He's like working in you know show business, and he's a writer. He's you know an actor, um, a comedian. He's podcaster. He yeah. is a podcaster. So I mean, I don't know what was it like to talk to him, Katie. It was cool. He's really really chill on the phone. Um, I actually was speaking to him as he was finishing up the first leg of his comedy tour promoting the movie with, um, he was with A.D. Bryant from SNL and Ray Romano. 
and they were on their way down to D.C. and they'd been on this big tour bus and he, you know, was clearly, you know, a little tired from all the promotion that he had to do, but he's really, really chill and really like funny, but not in your face funny or trying too hard. Um, yeah, he was a lot of fun to talk to. I thought it was interesting, too, that he has not taken acting lessons until he decided uh, that he would probably want to pursue a movie. T- tell us a little about that. Like, what made him decide, like, after being on a hit HBO show with, with Silicon Valley uh, and making all these appearances on Portlandia, you know, obviously he was doing well without acting classes. So what made him decide to do that? Yeah, so he said he kind of got the sense that there was a chance that he was going to get to make this movie, which he wrote with his wife, Emily Gordon. Um, And it's actually a story based on their own love story. It's kind of an insane story. Quickly, I'll just give you a few details on it. Um, But basically, he started dating Emily, and they had been dating for a little while. He's Pakistani, and his parents didn't want him dating a white woman, so he kind of hid it from them. And then uh, they kind of, Emily and Kumail, kind of hit this rocky point in their relationship and break up. And she ends up having to be put into a medically induced coma. I'm not giving anything away here. This is like actually part of their true love story. Um, And yeah, it's just a really wild story. And they decided they wanted to make it into a movie. And he was thinking, you know, obviously he lived it. So he knows how to tell the story and act in this kind of situation. But he had never done any acting that was kind of dramatic or romantic, I guess, in a way, because his character on Silicon Valley is very unlucky in love. Uh, So he decided it was time to take some classes and do that kind of dramatic side of acting because he, you know, he excels so much in comedy, but the drama wasn't something he was really used to. I love how he didn't take any acting classes to be on an HBO show, a scripted show. I know, it's kind of awesome. (laughs) I, I feel like that's kind of proof. These ensemble shows like Silicon Valley uh, are always proof to me that it's really more about who are you friends with, like, you know, who's in your your comedy bro circle or whatever it is, because it's like these guys, it's like you saw him pop up in uh, Portlandia. And uh, honestly, I, I had no idea who he was when he was on Portlandia being a, the waiter uh, at like they go to this you know, one of those restaurants where there's like a 50 page menu and, and the waiter won't stop talking and he's just got this deadpan delivery. And I just remember constantly, I could not stop laughing at that sketch. And I was just like, who is this guy? And the next thing you know, he's, you know, he's on Silicon Valley and he's everywhere. <laughs> it's really funny. Cause he, he told Katie that he watches ads and is like, who is that guy? Like when yeah. he sees, a, when he sees funny people in commercials that he doesn't know, he's like, who's that guy? And then, and then he'll, he'll end up seeing the person on a show later and, that's sort of why, Katie, that's why he said he likes ads, right, partly. Yeah, he enjoys, like, seeing, you know, he thinks that's how a lot of comedians get their start, and I guess it probably is. Um, and he, I thought what was really interesting that he said about ads that he really likes is that he sees them, especially funny ads, he sees them as, like, little 30-second sketches or little 30-second films almost, which I thought was, like, a really interesting way to think about an advertisement. The, uh, you know, T.G. Miller, I, I I feel like I actually prefer him in ads because I think that's about the, the extent of time I need of T.J. Miller uh, before I'm, you know, <laughs> Fair kind, point. Of, Fair point. kind of done with him. It's like everybody was freaking out the other day that he's apparently leaving uh, Silicon Valley. And, I you know, I am 100% fine with that just because uh, his character, you know, Ehrlich Bachman, while he's, He's certainly one of the funnier parts of that show. I just feel like his joke is done. Like he's a bit of a one note, uh, you know, punchline. Whereas Dinesh, uh, Kamel's character, 
it has a lot of depth to it. Guilfoyle uh, is, you know, a fantastic character. There's just so much going on in that show that I could easily watch another five or six seasons of w- without having T.J. Miller on there. But they could not. try and get another woman on. I don't know. Yeah. That might be a good thing for Silicon that's, Valley to do. That's crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, they had that one woman programmer for a hot sec, and she just disappeared. She went away. No, they didn't yeah, then she came back anymore. and like. She came back and blackmailed them, which I actually thought was pretty awesome. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, that show, the, I'm getting way off on a tangent, but that show definitely needs to beef up its uh, portrayal of women, not just for the sake of, you know, equal treatment, but just the, it, it falls into that trap of like, every guy is stupid and every woman is brilliant is its own form of sexism. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's like putting women on this, on this uh, pedestal of like, they're going to solve all the problems that these guys create. And I'm like, yeah, that's you're not really humanizing them. Like in a show where people are this stupid, you should be willing to let the female characters be stupid too, and not like make them have to be the voices of reason while every other guy like goes around being an idiot. But I will I say that the big sick has a much better female character than anything in Silicon Valley. Um, she's played uh, Emily is played by Zoe Kazan, um, who is you know in a whole bunch of movies but maybe you won't know her by name unless you've seen like ruby sparks or she she plays a daughter and it's complicated which is a great nancy myers movie but that's a whole (laughs) other thing um but yeah i mean we should uh, we should probably talk about the other 99 folks on this list um i i will just uh, while we're on the celebrity uh aspect i'll say that one of my favorites was martellus bennett he's a tight end he was with the uh new england patriots when they won the super bowl now with the green bay packers uh he's one of those where when i put out the call nice and early uh this time around of who would you you know who do you think are the most creative folks out there a friend of mine uh jamie props to you if you're listening to this uh he said uh oh martellus bennett uh he is I mean, yes, he's a great football player, but he runs a thing called the Imagination Agency, uh, which actually puts out uh, children's books. So these kind of digital uh, children's books that and story, uh, you know, kind of interactive experiences. But he did it because when he had a daughter and he realized that there were just not many stories out there with uh, with black characters, especially with black girls. And so he decided to write one. And he's just that kind of person. Like when he sees a gap, he fills it. Uh, when he wants to talk about something, when he wants to become an expert in something, he does. Uh, just a really fascinating guy. And, you know, so so I read some article that said he's the most creative uh, player in the NFL, which admittedly isn't saying a whole lot. <laughs> but I would say that beyond that, and sure enough, he was like the first person to tweet about this when Creative 100 went live. Uh, you know, as he, he said, well, I didn't make the 100 top players of the NFL this season, but, you know, I made the Adweek's Creative 100. <laughs> so he's got his priorities straight. Good tweet. Um, Frame it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, of course, we had uh, uh, Donald Glover, which surprised me. We did not put him on last year, and I think that's honestly just because he was on the cover of our Young Influencers issue, which came out right around the same time. And so I honestly think that's the only reason we didn't have him on there last year. Um, but uh, because, to Tim's point, we don't repeat uh, any celebrities. But obviously, Donald Glover's star has continued to rise uh, very well since then. Um, and, uh, yeah, who else? Any other uh, kind of big names that you guys were, were happy to see on the list? Or, or wrote up yourselves? Um, the woman and the man responsible for the OA, um, Zal, uh, I don't know how to say his last man. name, and I wish I did. Um, Britt. 
And Britt, Britt yeah, Marling. Yeah, Britt Marling. <laughs> we all joke, you're like, I can say Britt Marling. <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> I just, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a fascinating duo. They created the OA. They created uh, several other uh, uh, films. Uh, and what I thought was most interesting is in an interview, I didn't get to interview them uh, directly, but read an interview where she talked about the reason that they wanted to do the OA was because they had done these kind of sci-fi and, and thriller movies but they felt like you spend an hour, hour, hour and a half building a world, and then you only have like half an hour left. You know, you just, you don't have any time left to enjoy the world and the characters you've built. And so they wanted their next project to be this thing that could just keep going and going. And a lot of people who watched the OA and wondered if the ending really even left room for a second season, uh, they ensure us that it does. They were like, this is just the outermost ring of the labyrinth, is kind of the way they put it, which I thought was nice. Uh, you know, visual uh, of what's left. But uh, yeah, I mean, they just seem like one of those, uh, you know, duos that's going to bring a lot to Hollywood in the next few years. I hope so, at least. For sure. And uh, let's uh, talk about some of the agency folks. Tim, you've mentioned a lot of the work that's going to win at Cannes, and I feel like several of those people are represented on this list as well. Yes, they are. Um, We were talking about also how fun it is to hang out with some of the younger folks at Cannes. I think my favorite part of the Creative 100 this year was the list of 14 uh, copywriters and art directors who are doing great work. You know, these are up-and-coming folks, young folks, um, but they've done some of the best work of the year. Um, You know, the the McCann team of Tally Gumbiner and Lizzie Wilson, they're on the list. They created Fearless Girl. Of course, uh, they had to be on the list. Um, Also, uh, Martin Zelks and Brian Stokely over at BBDO, they made the helped make, along with Peter uh, Alsante, the creative director, the Sandy Hook Promise uh, Evan commercial. And then there's some other folks, too. Uh, Molly Wilkoff and Zoe Kessler over at Barton F. Graf uh, were really cool. They they had the idea to uh, take uh, Emerald Nuts and and basically base the whole, the whole campaign around uh, Amazon reviews and, and the new tagline, which we've spoken about on this podcast. Uh, yes, good. The Emerald Nuts tagline came from a two-word review on Amazon, and they, they adopted that and made it the whole brand tagline. Uh, so that was cool. Uh, also, the young team at RGA, Kate Carter and Zach Royf, um, they've done some really interesting work with chatbots. Um, they built one for the election last year where you could ask it anything about politics, and it would it would give you an answer. And then they also made one for Equal Pay Day where they took Cindy Gallup and turned her into a chatbot. Um, she would help you um, help women find uh, accurate salary information uh, and and you know, explain how to go about asking for the raise that, that you deserve. So that was cool. And then the young team at Widen and Kennedy, um, Chen Liang and Ryan Nyland, who made the the squid um, animatronic octopus that, that, that did the 16-hour or however long it was live stream, uh, internet-controlled live stream uh, a couple weeks ago. So they were on it too. So um, yeah, the young folks were awesome. We also had a bunch of interesting uh, ACDs and, and creative directors on here. Uh, Juan Pena and Ricardo Casal, the guys from David who made, um, they, they brought the Mad Men ads uh, for Heinz um, from fictional world into the real world. They also did the Google Home stunt for Burger King, uh, where they, they had the, um, a TV commercial um, kind of get people's Google Homes talking about the Whopper, um, which was kind of you know, controversial, kind of invasive stunt, uh, but they were like super proud of it, as they told us. And also, you know, a couple of folks that did uh, work that that is really social good, um, but not the tired kind of social good, where it feels like it's an awards bait kind of campaign. Um, the 180 LA uh, Associate Creative Directors, Tylin McCauley and Brian Farkas, who did 
uh, Boost Your Voice, where they went into uh, neighborhoods that um, where where the voting is uh, the voting turnout is very low, and they turned Boost Mobile stores into polling places, so that people could actually vote right there and not have to travel, you know, many neighborhoods away. Often, a lot of this was done in in LA, so that was fascinating work. And also, uh, Digitas LBI, the team of um, Louis Calvano and Samantha. Uh, Bordignon, um, they did the uh, Whirlpool Care Counts campaign where they they convinced Whirlpool to uh, install washers and dryers uh, in schools because um, there's a ton of kids around the country that really you know, disadvantaged kids that struggle with access to clean clothes, and they you know they stopped going to school as a result because they're they're embarrassed and they they don't want to be there, and so this whole school laundry program is something that. You know, Digitas uh, came up with for Whirlpool, and they're they're it's been in I think fifteen hundred schools, and it's a it's an honest to goodness like real campaign that's making a huge difference. And so, you know, sometimes you get these case studies and you see them, and you're like, well, that was just made for an award. This is the complete opposite of that. And so, congrats to those guys too. And that you know, the other team like a case st- study that would make you cry though, like <laughs> all those kids in their clean clothes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. It's 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 an emotional issue, um, and, but you know at the same time it's like a such an actionable solution, and it's it's they they the trial that they did was like super successful apparently, and they're they're expanding it hugely, which is amazing. We do have some CCOs on the list. We don't really need to talk about them. They, they you know those guys are they get more than more attention than the younger folks. But there are there were two uh, ECDs from Ogilvy, New York that I did not know before doing this this uh, the Creative 100 this year. It's uh, Vicky Azarian and Jeff Curry, and they're the folks at Ogilvy who really do uh, everything uh, Watson for IBM. So. Uh, Jeff has really kind of crafted Watson's personality and how Watson is presented to the world. Um, and then Vicky does, you know, a ton of the cool Watson activations, like the cognitive dress that they did at the Met Gala last year. And then also they created a crazy sculpture uh, over at uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona where they fed they fed Watson all this information about Gaudi, the architect, and had, had Watson create a, a kind of a living sculpture um, based on that information. So it's interesting to see, you know, the, the faces and the names and the people, the actual agency people behind um, stuff like Watson, which is such a consumer-facing kind of buzzy uh, product. Um, but everybody on this list, uh, I think there was something like seventy creatives because we we sometimes bundle pairs and count them as one one entry. That you know, all seventy of these folks had had done amazing work in the past year, and uh, we we're happy to include all of them. One I wanted to mention from our uh, authors and artists list, uh, which is a is always a really fascinating list. But one uh, who it's one of those where, to your point about you've never heard of them, and then you look into them and you're like, how have I never heard of this person? Uh, is a guy named Patrick Clare, uh, and he works at a at a kind of a production conglomerate called uh, Elastic, uh, this, you know, group of, of producers and, and video video folks. But anyway, he does uh, opening sequences for TV shows. He did the opening sequences for True Detective, Westworld, The Crown, Daredevil, Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, I mean, pretty much any major Netflix show you can think of. And it's just fascinating to think all these amazing openings were done by one person. Mm. Uh, you, you know, it's just, uh, I love finding those people and, so you know, cool. they're not household names, but man, you know their work. Uh, in the same way, Tim Miller uh, is best known for, uh, he made the list this year, he's best known for being director of Deadpool. That was actually his directorial debut. Uh, he is mostly a uh, production studio owner. He he started a place called Blur Studio. They do long form video game trailers mostly. They also do opening sequences for movies uh, and TV shows probably. Uh, but 
but uh, you know, they create these like six minute animated trailers for video games that are just stunning. Uh, they did a Star Wars one called Betrayal, which I think is better than some of the Star Wars movies. Uh, so, you know, just, uh, there's some really fun names in that list. So we, we will, uh, you know, stop there. We don't need to keep going, but, uh, the creative 100 is a fantastic list. I really encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, thank you to Christina and Katie for all the work you put into it. Thank you, Tim, for, uh, you know, the hundreds of hours that you put into this thing each year. Uh, it's a, it's a really stellar uh, piece and I'm glad we got to tie it with can this year because quite a few of these people will be at the can lions and I look forward to meeting them in person. Uh, we're going to have a reception for them, uh, on the Tuesday of can lions. So, uh, should be a really fun time, and I, I just can't wait to actually uh, meet these people in person. So um, I, I think that's it. We have packed a lot into this episode. As I said, uh, keep an eye on the podcast feed and definitely on adweek.com next week. We are going to be just flooding you with news from Can, uh, And, uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. And definitely hit us all on Twitter. Uh, you can find us all pretty easily. And, uh, you know, check in on what's going on there. Ask us questions. We're happy to uh, answer as can as we're able. And uh, that's it. That's it for this week. Uh, so... Lots can next week, and uh, then we'll be back. And I have no idea what's happening after that. I feel like my brain, my, my mental calendar ends a- after <laughs> next week. Uh, so then we'll we'll get back into the swing of normal life after that. Uh, but thank you to the panel for showing up, and I will see each of you on a flight to France pretty soon. So our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. And if you have not already, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast those reviews mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the podcast that's it and we will talk to you next week this week's episode was brought to you by the trade desk even the most perfect advertising connection is hard to create the trade desk makes it easier run your entire digital campaign across every channel on one platform thetradedesk.com hey there are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.